Hello, and welcome to the official podcast of Bishop Malcolm Smith. These teachings are recorded live each week and provided not only here on the podcast, but at youtube.com. Simply go to youtube.com and look for Malcolm Smith webinars in the search engine there. We also want to invite you to go to www.malcolmsmith.org. There you will find other teachings by Malcolm, including books, videos, and MP3 downloads. And now, with this week's teaching, Bishop Malcolm Smith. And the Lord be with you all. And I trust you had a glorious celebration of Resurrection Day, which is the the very cornerstone of the church. I mean, every one of us who are born of the Spirit Okay, I want to read what happened on that resurrection morning, one of the very first things that happened. And it's in John and chapter 20. And there had been others at the tomb already, but Mary Magdalene is there. And that's what I want to look at in verse 11 of John 20. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, She stooped and looked into the tomb, and she beheld two angels in white, sitting one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and beheld Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned, the the Greek word there is she spun around and said to him in the Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher, Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. Okay, the, one of the first most personal interviews that Jesus had immediately after he has risen from the dead. And it comes around, and this is what I want to share. I, I've been here before, you might have heard me speak about it, but this is new, it's fresh. Jesus asked Mary the question, why are you weeping it seemed to be the conversation of the heavens because the angels also asked exactly the same question. Why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And, and that arrests me. I feel that in that question of Jesus, there, there lies so much. Why are you weeping? And, and she is being asked that by the freshly. Can I emphasize fresh out of the tomb, fresh bursting out of death and coming out of grave 
And now, just uh, what, uh, half an hour, hour after that, he's there. And he's standing behind Mary as she has been stooping to look into the grave, the cave where the body of Jesus had been placed. And what amazes me is that when she turned around and saw him, she thought he was the gardener. One would expect, surely, that he who has now risen from the dead, I mean, let those words sink in. This has never happened in all of time before. Yes, we've had those who were raised from the dead, but actually, if you're going to be correct, they were resuscitated. For they came back from the dead, but they came back from the dead still under the authority of death to die again at some later point. And so, yes, Lazarus was raised from the dead, but only in that sense of resuscitation. When we say this word resurrection, we mean that which has never happened in the history of the human race. And... Jesus, at this present moment, is the only true human who presently sits at the right hand of the Father in a resurrection body. There's only one resurrection body in all of time, space, history at this present time. He is the guarantee that we too shall follow him with resurrection body. But presently, he's the only one. Now, what would you think that resurrection body would look like? I mean, come on. We, we uh, give it some lights at least, maybe flashing lightning out of the pores of the skin. Uh, let, it, let it glow in the dark. Let it at least look a little bit nuclear. I, I, the resurrection body of Jesus, but he is so ordinary that Mary mistook him for the maintenance man. Hmm. But do you know, Mary, this is, do you realize, Mary, that you are right at this moment standing on the very edge of a new creation? It's happened. And you are within minutes Hours of beginning to have your eyes open to realize that that which had been anticipated since Genesis 3.15, the promise of the one who should crush the head of the serpent, and all through the millennia of the Old Testament, they had waited and waited. And now, you, Mary, do you realize you are standing right there? in the presence of that one who has so recently crushed the head of the serpent and brought about a new creation. Or could I put it this way? Mary, do you know that while you slept last night, the world as you know it ended? Do you know that? Do you know, Mary, that when this one who stands before you mistaken for the maintenance man, do, do you realize when he died, he carried the creation and your very existence with him? The world died. And while you slept, 
a new creation burst into being right here in this garden. Hmm. Ever thought about that? Last night there was a world and this morning that world died and now is risen in this one person. But Jesus doesn't blurt that out. Uh, she might have died of shock. Um, Jesus meets her, as he always meets us, at the point of, of our pain or wherever we're at. He can start anywhere. He doesn't have four spiritual laws. It has to begin at number one. He, he begins where we're at, and she's weeping. She hasn't got a clue what happened last night and early this morning. She doesn't have a clue. And, and so she's weeping as a woman who is broken, broken over the fact that Jesus died and she saw his mutilated body laid in this very tomb. And she's weeping that in her perception of what's happened, they, they have come and stolen the body, the enemies of Jesus. Could they, couldn't they just leave us alone? They've killed him, they mutilated him. Isn't that enough? No, they had to come and steal his body. And she stands weeping. Everything is wrong. And so Jesus meets her in her tears, begins where she is. Woman, why are you weeping? What's the matter? Why are you weeping? I, I look at that, and I don't want to push this beyond what I think is obvious, but it, it's a cameo of all of us weeping at the tomb, weeping in the face of death. It's a cameo of our life until we meet with this Jesus who has conquered death and risen from the grave. You see, the, the, the best of religion in this world can't help us here. We weep in the face of death because the best of religion does not see or does not understand that Jesus Christ's resurrection is the good news of meaning and purpose to life. In fact, it is the beginning of real life. But until we've seen that, essentially our life is lived standing before death. Hebrews 2.15, and, and you could really make a note and read that, and it points out in Hebrews 2.15, that the human race lived all their life in bondage because of the fear of death. Death, it, it, it overshadows all of life. Death is the way we define our human existence since Adam's fall in the garden. We live there. We live at the tomb. Huh, maybe I could say tombs because there's it seems death is all around us. We're like that man in the Gospels. Jesus cast the demons out of him. Do you remember when the demon said their name was Legion? And it says he lived among the tombs. That, that's humankind. We live in the middle of death. And of course, we mask it, we hide it, we build walls around it, we try and pretend everything's all right, and we try and invent what life ought to look like. But no. 
We live in the tombs. Let me put it like this. Everything that happens in life, in fact, happens just for a split second. In that moment, we interact with life and then it falls behind us. And essentially, it's dead. It's over. I can never relive that again. It has become a statue back there behind me. And I can see it in my rearview mirror. And really, what I call life essentially is in my rearview mirror. It's what we call memories. You see, the beginning of my talking to you tonight is already a memory, it's already in the rearview mirror. And and that's life. It's 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 how we would describe um, our, our workaday life, our domestic life, our relational life, our educating life. Everything that's happening to us, it, it happens in a micro moment and then falls behind us and is dead. I can never live it again. I can only try to put it together by looking into the rearview mirror where everything is set in concrete like a graveyard. It's now become part of the world of was. It no longer is. And there are persons there, persons I met, persons, even the persons I'm still in process of relating to, but everything we said a moment ago is part of the past. It's done, it's over, it's finished. Even the joys, all those days, those hours of true joy and but they passed and we can't repeat them it's like a photograph and I can look at it it was captured in a moment of time but I can't get into the photograph and what was happening in that photograph can't get out to me it's dead it's in the past it's over and the pain and the abuse and the betrayals they're all there and, and and I I look at it and it's it's that's it that's my life and it's unchangeable it's etched in stone it's done irreversible unchangeable those decisions that I made would to God I hadn't we say the words I said if I could only take them back my my actions what I did if only I could undo them and along with it comes. All those questions as we wrestle with my life in the rearview mirror. It's over. I can't change it. So all I can say is if only, if only. And I look again and say, what if I had or supposing I had not? But it's all futile because I can't change it. There it is. I look at some of the things that I said and I did and I said, how could I have said that? But then I hear again in the graveyard and say, how could she have said that? How could he have done that? Oh, if only I could change what happened. If I could only make the photograph come alive again. If only I could change my decisions. Stop that abuse to the little child now that I'm an adult. Oh, could I have changed? All futile, isn't it? Because you can't. All you can do is look in the rearview mirror. And we keep revisiting it, trying to make sense. 
out of that which is now just my dead past, feeding its death into my present moment. It's really just an aside, but but the woman, Mary, was part of the, the woman group that that came and they they had come to the tomb or were going to come to the tomb that morning in order to embalm the body of Jesus. Um, And I say this is just an aside, but we, we are always trying to return to our past to embalm it. We're trying to somehow make sense of it, find some meaning, some purpose, some... But it's dead. The Bible just says we live in death. We live in death. We're we're separated from God. We're separated from each other by by just who we are in Adam. Separated from God. So we, we turn to the God of our imagination, the God of the perceptions that our ancestors passed on to us. And, and, and we rage at him and we look at all of that stuff behind us and we say, how could you do this to us? Where were you when? Read it on Facebook the other day of someone describing their disease and they, they, they said that they have to live with this God who gave them the disease to teach them a lesson, and they describe him a cruel and vicious deity. Yes, I agree with you. If that's the God you worship, he's not the Christian God. He's not the God who came and revealed himself in the Lord Jesus. He's not our God. But if that's the God you worship, then yes, you worship a cruel monster, the people weep, you see. We weep at our tombs. What is there, what is there to, to do? Because we're just trying to make sense out of chaos. We weep at the tomb. Well, that's bad enough. But Mary, just three days before, laid Jesus in the tomb. When I, when I tried to get inside the heads of these disciples, they, they watched Jesus die. Let the word sink in. And they took his dead body and they put it into this tomb, lifeless, dead, bloody, mangled. Huh. Can you get inside their head? I mean, that spells one thing. Everything is over. Finished. This is the ultimate that goes into the rearview mirror. It's a, this, is, this is death. Death to my very life if, if, if he's gone. You see... It wasn't just that Jesus was a beautiful person, compassionate, which of course he was. Not that he said the wisest of things. If you say that was Jesus, the prophet who said the wisest and most beautiful things, well, I would suggest you read the Gospels, because he didn't. 
that, why do you think the temple was so enraged by him? It was because all his words, everything he said, all the promises he made, they were different to any prophet or wise man that had ever walked on the earth. Because everything he promised and every word by which he described life depended on him being there. See, Jesus never gave us a principle. You see, you can go to Eastern gurus and shamans and whatever, and you can come up with some nice little sayings that they, they've said, and get excited and say, what wisdom? Yeah, just hold, that's just a principle. Sometimes there's a bit of truth in it. But Jesus never gave any principles. Have you ever thought about that? And you go to other religious areas and they'll give you formulas that if you do this and if you do that and, and, and do this enough, then that will happen. No, Jesus never gave a formula. You know, sometimes we should sit down and read the Gospels again as if we'd never read them before. They're shocking. Everything that Jesus said, promised, every wise saying of Jesus, depended solely upon himself being there. Didn't work without him. So you get all of the great I am sayings, you know, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, I am the good shepherd, and so on. Have you ever noticed he didn't say, I'll show you the way, he didn't point to the way, like any respectable prophet would. Jesus said, I am the way. That's a difference. Speaking of this incredible grace, it's part of the gospel. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. God didn't give us anything. He didn't give us some it called salvation. He wrapped everything up in one package. Everything hung on one person, Jesus. And salvation is you believe upon him. And Jesus said, whoever believes upon me out of his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. Come unto me, I will give you rest. I mean, that's shocking. I know you've heard it so much, but, but get into these disciples' heads. It means that if Jesus is dead, then we can cancel out the gospel. We cancel out everything he said. You can't now revere his memory because everything he said depended on his being there alive. If he's dead, there's nothing left. That's why these people who so religiously quote Jesus while in the next breath they say he's dead, you know, and they say what a marvelous death he died. You know, he died for his faith. He died for, oh, come on. If, if you've ever read the Gospels, you know that if Jesus died, and that's it, if Jesus died, 
then he's not the beautiful prophet. No, he's the liar. Not a word he said was true if he died. If, if, if he died, then I'll go further. He's more than a liar. The man is insane. He thought he was God, and he thought that he could give you peace that passes human comprehension. He thought he could give you joy in the face of this world's chaos. Are you daft? You're following a man who said that, and then he died? It was C.S. Lewis, I think, who put it as only he could. And he said, if Jesus is not the Son of God, if he did not rise from the dead, then he is to be likened to an insane man who believes he is a fried egg. That's about it. If Jesus is dead, then the politics and the rottenness and the corruption of empires and man won. Rome won. They put him to death and that's the end of it. If Jesus was dead, then religion, with all its greed and its own peculiar rottenness, who were the main players behind Rome crucifying him, they won. And you might as well get used to it then, this slavery to mankind, this slavery beyond mankind to Satan, to all there is, it's as good as it gets. Huh. Why are you weeping? Why are... I mean, yes, we've just... Hours ago, we put Jesus into the tomb. We have nothing left. We've become the stewards of the words of a madman. Why am I weeping? Huh. Why are you weeping? That's the craziest question. Of course you'd be weeping. If the death of this one means the loss of everything they have come to know as life. You might say, I would to God he had never come. Because it's worse now than it was before he came. Before he came, we had no hope. But once he came, he gave us hope. And now if he's dead, we've lost that hope, the only hope we ever really had. I wish we'd never had it. It was easier not to know it existed. Why are you weeping? There's nothing left. There's no more sense. There's no more meaning. There's no more purpose. Why are you weeping? Mind you, it's a strange question to ask of anybody in a graveyard. <laughs> I, I mean, you, you understand? If, if I go into a graveyard and I see someone weeping, I'm not going to go up to them and say, why are you weeping? As if uh, I'm rather uh, amazed that they are. If I see someone weeping at the mall or on the beach, yes, I might say, uh, why are you weeping? Can I help you? And then he goes on and say, whom are you seeking? That's another daft question. You don't say to anybody, Let, let's get together. I'll meet you at the third gravestone on the right. No. You don't meet people for a visit in the graveyard. 
You go to a graveyard to look into the rearview mirror of everything that was and no longer is. This is a strange question Jesus is asking. Why are you weeping when you're standing in the presence of absolute loss? When the person that you would long to meet has gone these three days? Why are you weeping? Why are you weeping? Well, then the question, the question it's as if it's as if Jesus is saying you must have missed something to be weeping. You, you understand? This isn't the place to be weeping. Well, everybody in their right mind would say it is the place to be weeping. But Jesus is saying, why are you weeping? This insinuation is this isn't the place to be weeping. It's not the time to be weeping. Have I missed something? Is there something Mary, is there something that you haven't heard? Is there some news that you've missed? Because Jesus is saying, by this question, he's introducing a new possibility. A possibility that you have good reason not to be weeping. Well, just a minute. If... If there's any possibility that you should not be weeping, then there's no in-between ground. If, if you shouldn't be weeping, then the only alternative is you should be celebrating with raucous joy, mad joy, wonderful joy, astonishing joy. There's no middle ground. This is not... You know, in, in England, I don't know if they still are like it, but when I was growing up in England and someone was all weeping and, you know, upset, uh, uh, I, can, I can hear my aunt saying it. There, there, everything will be all right. Let's have a cup of tea. Well, if, if weeping at the death of Jesus is, is you know, you're not going to weep. There's a possibility here that will stop the weeping. You don't go from there to have a cup of tea. If, if I don't have to weep over a dead Jesus, then the possibility would only lead me to something wild joy. There's no in-between here. The very question suggests a possibility of life so extreme as to swallow up every tear. A life that is too big to think of. In fact, my ancestors couldn't think it. They couldn't think it. They always dodged it by saying that it, when we get to heaven, everything will be okay. At the end of time, he'll wipe away all tears from our eyes. Oh, no wonder people leave the church by droves. Is that your only hope? You're going to stop your weeping when you die? Is that your only hope that you go to heaven when you die? Jesus stood with this woman right in the middle of a graveyard, in the middle of death, looking into the rearview mirror. And he said, why are you weeping? 
Because right now, oh Mary, if you knew it, right as the clock is ticking, the new creation is beginning to infuse this world from this person who stands in front of you. His very question is the sound of the key turning in the lock that will fling the door open to the goodest news you've ever heard, a life that has swallowed death. Again, religion, even in some of its hymns, it expects to spend the rest of your life weeping. Was it is a hymn I remember from my childhood? So we walk through his veil of tears. Oh Lord. You've never heard of joy unspeakable and full of glory? Have you never heard Jesus say, My joy I give to you? If you've heard the gospel, you can laugh in the face of death. Laugh at it. Jesus is not a photo in a religious photo album, faded and wrinkled, a sentimental memory of a wonderful person. Jesus walked out of the photo. He came out of the rearview mirror. He's alive. And if he's alive, then Satan and sin and grief and sorrow and this world system and the flesh is gone. Oh, but there's so much more. (laughs) Who is he? This one who could be mistaken for the maintenance man. And this afternoon will be mistaken as a traveler on the road with the two on the road to Emmaus. And later tonight we'll sit down somewhere in Jerusalem and eat fish supper with the other disciples. Who is he? The entire gospel hangs upon who he is. You cannot understand the gospel. You can't understand its promises until you answer the question, who is he? And we could, of course, spend weeks on that. But bottom line, Jesus, son of God, God from God, who is declared again and again in scripture to be the creator, the creating word that we hear in Genesis, that without him there was not anything made that was made. Colossians tells us it's in him, in Jesus, that the atom holds together. Hebrews 1.1 says, He upholds all things by the word of his power. Well, (laughs) I mean, that covers all bases, doesn't it? It covers the fact that you're alive, your body holds together, you're still breathing. He's the creator, the one in whom all things consist, and the one who upholds all things. So he is the individual Jesus who had an address in Nazareth and a little sign outside his door to say Jesus of Nazareth carpenter but that person is the son of God and that means when he became human 
when he in the womb of the Virgin Mary took to himself our humanity and limited himself to that humanity and became a speck of life in the womb of the Virgin and became a babe, became a toddler and a young man. God became flesh, moved into our neighborhood. If he is God, the creator, then that human, that human birth, that human life, the sufferings, death, resurrection, ascension, involves the entire human race. Come on. If the creator was snuffed out, then the whole creation snuffs with him. Obviously, that's logic. If he is the one upon whom the whole creation hangs and exists, then if he dies, the whole creation dies with him. So his human existence is not a private affair. This is God in a plan that blows our minds. God coming into, joining himself to, assuming our humanity. It's broken humanity, but his love is now going to recreate mankind and the universe from within it. So when Jesus died, when Jesus suffered, he, <laughs> he assumes our death. And what is death? Death came in in Genesis chapter 3. We were never created to die. We were never created to sin. Death came in, and it came in through Satan. It was his way of controlling the race. It was the source of his stolen authority. With Satan, sin with sin came guilt, with guilt came shame. With sin and shame there came sorrow and grief. And put enough of these twisted, distorted, chaotic persons together and you have the world system. You have flesh, which is man seeking to be an independent God. And with all of that, you have the lie by which Satan lives and you have the darkness that ensues from it. And this is God who joins our humanity, comes down into our ghetto, into our neighborhood of living hell, of death, and he takes it. It says the Lord caused all our iniquity to meet upon him. All of our suffering, all of our grief and sorrow met upon Jesus. It's the great exchange. God joined the human race to take to himself the tyranny of Satan. Take to himself our very existence under the bondage of Satan. Take to himself our broken relationship with God. Take 
and make his own my past, your past, with all its twisted, betrayed, abusing history. Take my present life with all its relationships, my future hopes, my dreams, everything, everything summed up and focused in the one man who is God. He takes our life because he will give us his life. He is going to take our brokenness and he is going to mend us. And it will happen in himself, not something he will do for us, but he will take it and in himself will achieve it. See, you can't get you, as well as me, we, but I've got to say of me, I've got to say I, and you've got to say I. This is intensely personal. The scripture says, if one died for all, then are all dead. Jesus Christ took Malcolm Smith in the totality of my existence, in the totality of my past, my present, my hopes, my dreams, the totality of my relationship to God, all of which are broken. And he became that and carried it to crucifixion. The scripture says, if one died for all, then all died. If Christ died for all mankind, then every mankind died with him. Paul said it plainly, I was crucified with Christ. You get it? Romans 6, read it, It, the whole passage is, is about this fact that when Jesus died, you died with him, you were buried with him. Do you get it? The cross is not an isolated event that we look at from a movie theater seat. The cross is what is happening to a broken, twisted mankind. God says, we're not going to heal, we're going to kill it and exchange their broken lives for our life, the life of God. You see, this is God's gift. This is grace, ultimate grace, going beyond our wildest dreams. Grace, you see, is not an it. It's not a thing. God doesn't give you something called salvation. He doesn't give you something called peace. It's not an it. He gave his very self in Jesus. Grace is the person of Jesus totally given to us so that he takes our life in its extreme darkness and pain and hurt and sin and shame and sorrow and so on. And when he died, it died. When I went to Jerusalem and went into this tomb in which Jesus lay those days, I sat upon the place where his body lay and I said, upon this stone, Malcolm Smith's entire life was buried. It's gone. 
but you don't have to go there to do that. I just said that to let you know it's an historical act. Happened in time and space. Have you noticed all through the New Testament, everything that it speaks of in terms of God's promises and God's action towards you, it says, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in the Beloved, in Christ. What's it keep on to the point where you almost say, okay, we got it, you know. Why? Because your salvation is, I say again, not something. See, this is where we go wrong. Uh, And please, please hear me. We, we say Jesus died for us, which of course that's true, yes, don't, don't misunderstand me. But the idea is that somehow this person, totally out of touch with who we really are, visited us, did something for us, and off he went again. He did something for us. No, no, that's where we're wrong. What he did for us was give himself to us. Himself. He gave himself so much to us that he couldn't go off again. He joined himself to us for the ever and ever of unending ages. He became one of us in order to do what none of us could do. Bear away sin, smash the authority of Satan, bring an end to flesh and this world system, and bring us to the purpose of God. So when I say, God forgave me, please don't think that sort of God's over here, and I'm here, and then he gave me this thing called forgiveness. No, he took my sin into himself. Jesus became my sin. And then he gave to me himself forgiveness, reconciliation. Do you understand that? Look, we had a plumber come to our house a little while ago. There's a big problem with the the pipes and the water heater and everything. Do you know, I don't even know his name. But but he came and he did a jolly good job. He he fixed all the pipes and the water heater. And then, of course, we had to pay the bill for that. And then he went, he left, that was it. And we, we have to try our best now not to do anything silly with the pipes and... And I could go beyond. We, we also, when we first moved into our house, we had an electrician because the, the stuff there was about 50, 70 years old. And so all the wiring had to be redone. We had to pre- basically recreate the whole wiring system and the fuses. And But the same thing. I, I don't even know who did that. People think of Jesus like that, that he's the ultimate repairman, that he came and he did this something for us and he fixed all our pipes and he rewired us and and off he went, got this thing. And now we, what's the gospel? I've said this, oh, how many, how many, how many? 
believe that Christianity, the gospel, is that I have to try and be like Jesus. What a... Oh, Yahweh. Look. <laughs> you've, you've just added mental anguish to a hard job anyway. Keeping the law was bad enough. Now I've got to get inside the mind of Jesus and try and imagine what would he do. I don't have a clue what he'd do. That's religion. No wonder you get religious anxiety. No wonder you get religious headaches. It's No, Jesus is not the repairman. Look, if I continue those illustrations, when Jesus comes to me as the plumber... Jesus doesn't fix the plumbing. He becomes the pipes. He is the restoration of the whole plumbing system. Jesus, if I follow that illustration, is not the electrician who comes to fix the wires. Jesus becomes the wires and he becomes the new source of electricity and power. And he has so become that he himself is the guarantee of its continuance. So therefore salvation is not trying to be like him, for goodness sake, where'd you get that from? It isn't... uh, law of Moses that's been souped up. No. Oh, grace and truth have come by Jesus Christ. He is the gift and we trust him. What can you add to that? I recognize I don't do anything To know my relationship with God, I trust Him, Jesus, who is my relationship. I don't have to try and find the way. He is the way, you see. I don't have to try and be a Christian. He is my life. That's it. That's it. Mary didn't see that. Well, of course she couldn't. She was just, it was just, just, just dawning on her that she shouldn't be weeping. Um, and then he said the word, Mary, Mary. No one in the universe said Mary like Jesus says, even as no one in the universe knows you like Jesus knows you and calls your name in your spirit, in your heart. And she spins around. It's enough. She needs no further explanation. That intoned, Sound that that voice is the voice of Jesus, and she screams it out, Teacher. And then apparently, she clung to him, she grabbed him. And Jesus says, Do not cling to me. What's going on there? Mary saw that he was alive, she saw Jesus as the individual Jesus who now was alive, and she's clinging to him, basically saying, everything's going to be okay now, everything's okay, we can go back to Galilee and get away from all these enemies, and and we can have uh, feeding another 5,000, and you can, uh, I, I get it, clinging to him, you got away once, they got you, they won't get you again. 
And Jesus gently says, no, Mary, no. We're never going back there. Oh, everything has changed. Do you realize it? Mary, I say it again, do you not know that last night while you slept, the world as you know it came to an end? Do you know a new creation burst into being? No, we're not going back to do the Gospels over again. Because I'm ascending, the Greek idea there is I'm going face to face with my Father. I'm going back from whence I came. But, hold it, I'm not going back as I came. Because I came, God the Son, from the Father. But then I joined myself to human. I joined myself to you. I'm going back home now to Father, but I'm going back home joined to you. You're coming with me. I entered into your death. I laid you in the tomb. And now I've mended you, but you and I are so bound together. I can't go back to my Father without you. I ascend to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Human, human, you and I joined to Jesus are now being carried into the presence of the Father to look into the face of the Father as Jesus does and to hear the Father say to me, to you, you are my son, you are my daughter, even as he says it to Jesus. And for you to have the absolute assurance that you are embraced by the love of the Father, even as Jesus does. You're one. You're going home with him. He says to you and I, I am he who lives. Revelation 1.17. Maybe better translated, I am livingness. I am life. And then he says, and I love it, almost as a wink and a sigh, I was dead. Behold! Look at it. Wow. I am alive forevermore. And he's just gotten through saying in John 16, because I live, you shall live also. That's the gospel. It's the gospel. Colossians 3.1 says, Christ, the person, Christ, who is our life? Philippians 1, for me, said Paul, to live is Christ. And one we've already quoted, Galatians 2.20, I live, yet not I, it is Christ who lives in me. And interestingly, when Jesus said he was face to face with the Father and carrying us with him, it wasn't going to heaven, oh dear. I wish we could wash that phrase out of our brains. It's given so much hopelessness to people. If you're just going to heaven when you die, in between now and then, you've got to face life. You've got to face your work. You've got to face, well, everything. Now, supposing we understood it as the scripture does. When Jesus said he ascended face to face with the Father and was carrying us with him, supposing what really happened in fact was that heaven, the Father, 
came to earth. And right now, in the middle of our little lives, in the middle of our relationships, in the middle of our school and universities, in the middle of PTA, I am face to face with the Father, and He's delighting in me, and we're laughing together, and He's giving me His wisdom because I'm in Christ, and Christ is in me, and I have a relationship to the Father which is in accord with the relationship of Jesus to the Father. That's grace. That's 300% gift. I mean, what can I do in response to that? Two things. Repent. And that word, you know, is not the religious meaning which has come to us down through the ages. The word repent means change your mind, your deepest mind, your soul mind. Begin to think God's thoughts. Begin to see God and see yourself as God sees God and how God sees you. This one he loves to the <laughs> nth of the nth of the nth degree. So much so he gave himself in exchange for you. You live there. You live in that love. It's where you are face to face in that love but you're still here. And that presence of Jesus in whom you live and move and have your being and he lives inside of you and your life is where he lives and moves and has his being. That is accomplished in the Holy Spirit. That's where the Holy Spirit fits into all of this. But of course, that's another story. I just want to read to you a couple of verses of scripture and then I'm done. In Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4. But God. He's just talked about the absolute chaos and darkness and sin of mankind. Then he says, but God. Being rich in mercy. Because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead. In our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. You had nothing to do with it. God the Father made you alive because you had been placed together with Christ. I say it again, you had nothing to do with it. Love lassoed you. By grace you have been saved. And, he said, not only made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in deep heaven in the middle of the Holy Trinity in Christ Jesus. In order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That's your only response. You change your mind as to who God is and who you are because of Jesus. And then you believe it. In fact, more than believe it, you know it. And all of life flows out of that. 
So you can't do any. The only thing you can do with the gift is take it with great thanks and faith in the giver. Huh. Well, the giver is the Father and the gift is Christ and the Holy Spirit presses into your hands. And so you, for by grace you have been saved and that was through faith. And <laughs> the faith, it was not of yourself. It was a gift of God. It was the Holy Spirit who opened your eyes and inspired you that this is for you. Well, there it is. That's Resurrection Day. That's the ultimate grace. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, his ascension, carrying us with him. And in and through the Holy Spirit, we live together in Christ, in the midst of Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Our Father, it's so fantastic. This plan, this, this blueprint that is all summed up in Jesus. Thank you for opening our eyes. Thank you for every person whose eye has been opened this listening. Now, Holy Spirit, be our coach and teach us to walk in Christ as Christ would walk in us that we may live in your joy and your peace. And now the blessing of God, who is almighty love, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, may he bless you, opening your eyes to see the allness of Christ. So I bless you. And that's the way it is.